Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. When it stops being fun and your patience is done and you see being president's hard with this country before you that cannot be governed, you find yourself powerless, bloody, and scarred. Welcome to the Colin McEnroe Show. I'm Betsy Kaplan. Today, you'll hear Colin talking with Pulitzer Prize-winning author and presidential historian John Meacham about how the state of the nation may not be as bad as it seems right now. Here's John. We've had existential moments before. Yes, things are at risk, and yes, it's a dangerous time. To me, what's inspirational about history is not that they were different than us, but that they were just like us, and they managed to leave things just a little bit better off, and sometimes more. Colin and John spent an evening together this week at Infinity Hall in Hartford to celebrate the second annual Jack Chatfield Speaker Series presented by Watkinson School. The conversation, including audience questions, went on for almost two hours. We bring you our favorite 49 minutes from this great evening. All right, so we're going to begin with a little segment that we like to call, You Think It's Bad Now? So one of the things that I think most people believe is that they've just lived through the worst, most acrimonious election in American history, that there's never been anything as horrible of this, as this beforehand, nor ideally will there ever be anything so awful again. Um, I think uh, you know better. Uh, we could start in 1800. We could start with we, – well, we, we, should, we could start with Jefferson versus Adams, right? Yeah. That is – nobody called anybody hermaphroditic in this election. No, but if Trump knew what that meant, yes, he wouldn't. Right. <laughs> um, low-hanging fruit, but fruit tastes good. Uh, yes, <laughs> 1796 was the first competitive race. Uh, and remember, George Washington hated criticism so much that he actually considered not standing for a second term. He commissioned a farewell address in uh, the, the end of his first term by James Madison, to, uh, because he just thought the newspapers were too tough on him. This is a guy who never had a competitive race. So um, this is a perennial uh, force. But 1796, Adams and Jefferson uh, run against each other. Uh, newspapers in your fair state uh, wrote that you could have God and Adams or no God and Jefferson. So um, there was a little bit of hyperbole at, at, at work there. No one mentioned bad hombres, but they might have yeah. if they if they thought about it. You know, campaigns tend to the hyperbolic, uh, and some tend to what Richard Hofstetter called the paranoid style in American politics. I think that one of the most significant moments in modern political history was the shift in the 1960s from economic populism to cultural populism. The, the inside of the 1968 Nixon campaign was to run on cultural symbols appealing to voters who's, in whose economic interest it had usually been to vote with the Democrats, but to make, that, make the Democratic Party appear to be out of, out of touch. And so that shift, and what, in, in a fascinating way, it seems to me, at, at now a 50-year mark, what Trump has done is fused both populisms back together. But in 1800, uh, you know, Adams and Jefferson ran against each other again. Uh, it was so brutal that it, it fractured a, a longtime friendship. 
that only came back together uh, in their retirement. Andrew Jackson believed that John Quincy Adams's campaign had led to his wife's death, mm-hmm. that she had been killed by the, the charges that she had been a bigamist. The fact that the charges were true actually was not dispositive. So I come from the South. We have a different way of looking about at these things. And they weren't cousins, so it's okay. Well, but I want to, before we get to Jackson, I want you to tell a couple of stories. I mean, many of these people have read the books, uh, but not everybody has. So tell the story. Of, I think this one of the amazing stories uh, is the James Callender story. This yeah. is this guy who's, he's kind of Jefferson's Dick Morris in a way. He's like a guy yeah. you think you control, can control, but you can't. Yeah, I'd say Steve Bannon at this point. Well, yeah. maybe, all right. Yeah, yeah. Callender was a Scottish uh, j- journalist. In those days, uh, journalists meant partisan, right? Uh, so we're actually, when, when people complain about the media being partisan again, actually it's a reversion to what we were in the 18th and 19th centuries. In many ways, the 20th century ideal of a n- neutral media was an anomaly, uh, not, not the historical reality actually, in many ways, created by Adolf Ox, who bought the New York Times in 1896 and found a market position in New York City. There were 42 daily papers when Adolf Ox bought the New York Times. Uh, And so he needed something. He needed a marketing position. And so he realized there was no partisan place on the spectrum for him to go, so he decided to try to become more neutral and without fear or favor became his motto. And that ultimately triumphed as a, as a business model. But Callender was, James Callender, was a, a Jeffersonian partisan who turns on Jefferson and publishes in eight, September 1802 the account of Sally Hemings, Jefferson's enslaved person at Monticello, who, with whom Jefferson had, by my reckoning, a 40-year relationship. It's a very tough thing in, the, in terms of the vernacular to use. Can it be a relationship if one person is enslaved? Uh, it was a scandal uh, at the time. It has endured. Uh, Federalist newspapers in your part of the world used to run cartoons that had Jefferson as a rooster and Sally Hemings as a hen, and the caption was, a philosophic cock. So I know that a lot of people think that MSNBC or Fox caused all this, but it's been going on for a very long time. Yeah, and I mean, just to sort of make this clear, too, so Calendar is hired by Jefferson as kind of a hatchet man yeah. uh, to do a smear campaign against Adams, and he's pretty good at it, too, right? He convinces people that Adams wants to attack France and stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, and then what? He just doesn't pay him, right? Is that the, that's the problem, I think, is Jefferson doesn't... It's a, yeah, it's a lot like the vendors for the Trump organization. Yeah, no, it, it's, uh, it's very similar. Yeah, no, they, they, had, they had a falling out, and Calendar wanted a postmastership, I think. He's like the Rudy Giuliani of this moment. He's not going to get it. Um, can, can, did you ever think you would watch an episode of Cabinet Apprentice? Right. Isn't this great? I think, this, I think there's a lot to this, actually. I didn't think I'd ever be going, please let it be Mitt Romney. Please let it be Mitt Romney. Funny. You know, uh, uh. It's so true. It's amazing. I mean, this is going to make George W. Bush look like Aristotle by the time it's all over. I mean, it's... Um, and then Calendar ends up dying a mysterious death in Virginia, drowning drunkenly in about two feet of water. So, and, and I mean, Jefferson, I, you see Jefferson, I think, as very, very much of a pragmatist. Yeah. You know, a guy, he's, I think, cast in the American imagination as this incredible idealist who doesn't always live up to his ideals. You see him as a pragmatist, somebody who does what's needed at the moment? Absolutely. And Jefferson, I mean, in many ways, we followed what Jefferson wanted us to think about him. 
you know, on his tombstone, it says he was the founder of the University of Virginia, the author of the Declaration of Independence, and the author of the Virginia Bill for Religious Liberty, never mentioning that he's president. What he ensured thereby was that everyone who ever looked at his tombstone would say, goodness, he didn't even mention that he was president. So he affirmed that we would all think of him as a humble man. It's brilliant. But I do think those three achievements were to him about enlightenment principles that were largely uncontroversial. Mm -hmm. If you mentioned that you were Secretary of State or Governor of Virginia or a member of the Virginia Assembly or the Second Continental Congress or the Vice President of the United States or the President of the United States, you are immediately put into a world of contention. But for 41 years, except for three of those years, he was either seeking public office or holding it. Mm -hmm. Thomas Jefferson was that feared and dark thing that we don't like to talk about anymore, a career politician, and was one who I think is the embodiment of an ideal politician who was very much in touch with and conversant with the intellectual and cultural currents of his time. He was not simply a vote-getter, and I think our greatest presidents have been those who are actually those who have been in conversation to some extent with the culture and understanding that. And when you think about the American Revolution, I mean, what had been going on the first the two or three centuries before the Revolution? The Protestant Reformations, the translation of sacred scripture into the vernacular, the rise of the bourgeoisie, the entire reorganization of the understanding of society in the West from being vertical with the divine right of kings, popes, prelates, and princes to decide everyone's destiny to a more horizontal one, where at least if you were white, and particularly if you were a white man, you had the power to determine your own destiny. The American Revolution, in many respects, it seems to me, was the political manifestation of that shift. Mm -hmm. And nobody understood that better or articulated it more keenly than Jefferson did. Although, I mean, one of the things that I kept saying about this past election cycle, which we will keep coming back to all night, is, I mean... The first casualty was John Locke. The the other part of that was this Lockean notion of the ability of a human being, any human being, not a king, not an entitled person, to apprehend reality and make value judgments about it that were based on empirical fact. So that's over. (laughs) The role of reason in politics has always been limited. Politics is emotional, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, it's not clinical. It's human. It's the root of the word. What's the root of the word? The word is city. The Greek word is city, which means a group of individuals. So the very idea of it is about, is about human beings. St. Augustine, uh, which is your, your other treat tonight besides John Locke, wants to find a nation as a multitude of rational beings united by the common objects of their love. And so one of the questions, it seems to me, we have to ask at every point in our national life is what do we love in common? And... The answer at the moment is not enough, right? We stare at screens. We choose our uh, news sources based on uh, an ideological predisposition. With the end of the draft and broadly accessible, uh, at least to the upper middle classes, uh, public schools, there's very little class mixing in the United States. In many ways, a compelling case can be made that the most significant divisions in society of the past quarter century or so have not been racial but have been class-driven. Uh, there's huge overlap, obviously, but but we don't talk about class as much as we do, as much as we do race, and so I think that 
what you have to do if you do what I do for a living, which is you try to follow what Mark Twain said, which is that history may not repeat itself, but it does rhyme, uh, is try to figure out how have we overcome moments like this this before. And we've tended to do it not only through the constitutional order. I mean, the early 1930s, capitalism was a live question. The future of capitalism was in the dock. You had Bolshevism. Uh, the American left had never been more in love with Moscow than in the early 1930s. Norman Thomas went from getting 250,000 votes as a socialist candidate for president in the 1920s to getting almost 700,000 in 1932. Franklin Roosevelt said, somebody said, you know, we're so lucky that you're our president. And he said, well, if I don't get this right, I may be the last one. So we've had existential moments before. The difference is, and what what makes me anxious, is that leadership at the top has been essential to marshalling the hopes and managing the fears of the many. And right now, we are in a populist moment where the incoming president is incredibly good at manipulating a large portion of the population. What's unclear to me is to what end he will use that. Yeah, it's always been risky. I mean, Franklin, after the Constitutional Convention, is asked, supposedly by some woman, what kind of government this is going to be. And he says, a republic, if you can keep it. Uh, And we're still right there. So before we leave Jefferson... You know, you and I both started our work life at newspapers. Jefferson has this weird relationship with newspapers. We were talking about this backstage. You know, so at one point he says he'd rather have newspapers but no government than a government with no newspapers. That's how much he likes newspapers. Uh, On the other hand, at a certain point, he gets really tired of newspapers. So you've got him in 1803. I think he's writing to McKean, the governor in Pennsylvania, saying, it's not that I don't like newspapers, but I'm really sick of some of these newspapers. But he's basically saying, I wouldn't mind if somebody kicked a few of these newspapers in the shins. In Connecticut, he's got, they're going after our beloved Connecticut current uh, for, for libel. At a certain point, he ran out of patience with Federalists who were writing horrible stuff about him. No, no there's a uh, Teddy White, the great chronicler of, of uh, the great modern chronicler, and in many ways one of the most important figures in contemporary journalism. It was White, whose making of the President series really infused the, created this idea of the campaign narrative as an Arthurian quest. It raised uh, handlers and managers to these novelistic characters. And uh, White talks about what he calls the politician's optic, which is that he could read a 10,000-word newspaper story, 9,900 words of which are positive, but the 100 words of which are negative jump out to 17-point type, and that's what they remember. And that's true of Jefferson, and it was even more virulent. I mean, I think the other thing we have to mm-hmm. remember is that when Thomas Jefferson unbundled papers in, in the White House or at Monticello to read them, you know, it wasn't a headline you might not like. It, it would be a partisan tract. It would be like getting the – if you were President Obama, it would be as though they sent you a PDF of each transcript from the evening programming of Fox every day. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, the opinion program, you're like, here, Mr. President, is what Sean Hannity has said about you. And it appears with the same kind of authority and the same kind of typeface as, you know, your, your defenders. And so it gets inside you. One of the things that worries me most about Congress today, and that's a long list, 
is that senators and congressmen are constantly on their phones watching for any mention of themselves on social media. I've had senators show me this because I ask them. They are following minute to minute what's going on, what their local radio, ideological radio hosts are doing, what their local uh, activists are doing. And, I mean, Edmund Burke is spinning in his grave. You know, the idea of a representative, as, as we know from Burke, is that, yes, sometimes they are to be a mirror of our, our wills and wishes, but often they have to just offer us their best judgment. And when people say that some, and this was part of the Trump campaign to some extent, and also part of Secretary Clinton's, this idea that Washington is somehow out of touch with us, that's, it's the opposite is true. <laughs> Washington's too in touch with what we want. And I mentioned leadership a second ago. Followership is, is equally important in a democracy and in a republic. If we don't find a way to let the better angels of our nature win out 51% of the time, then we're going to continue to be incredibly dispirited by and disappointed in our public life. You're listening to a conversation between Colin McEnroe and Pulitzer Prize-winning author and presidential historian John Meacham, taped earlier this week at Infinity Hall in Hartford. We'll be back after a short break. Mr. Jefferson, welcome home. Mr. Jefferson, Alexander Hamilton. Mr. Jefferson, welcome home. Mr. Jefferson, welcome home, sir. Welcome back to Colin's Conversation with John Meacham, author of several biographies about some of our most prominent presidents, including his Pulitzer Prize-winning biography about Andrew Jackson, who he notes bears some similarities to President-elect Donald Trump. Back to Colin and John. All right, we're going to let Thomas Jefferson go. So 1824 is maybe the craziest election ever in terms of, uh, I mean, if you think recounts or 2000 was weird, I mean, we've got to go to 1828, but give them the the quick 1824. Sure. Four-way race. Uh, This will be the only time this week you will hear William H. Crawford of Georgia mentioned. Crawford is running uh, Henry Clay, John Quincy Adams, and Andrew Jackson. Uh, Jackson wins a plurality of the popular vote, but doesn't get a majority electoral college. The campaign goes to the House of Representatives. John Quincy Adams and Henry Clay strike a deal, what what Jackson comes to call a corrupt bargain, whereby Clay becomes Secretary of State in in exchange for throwing his support to Adams. In those days, being Secretary of State was the road to the presidency, much more so than the vice presidency. So for Clay to get the Secretary of State job was, was seen as a way of setting him up. Everyone was this – is, this is resonant at the moment. Everyone expected Jackson, who was known as an American Bonaparte, a, a dictatorial military chieftain. They expected him to lose it, to go crazy. He shows up at the White House at one of uh, Mrs. Monroe's last evening receptions and is grace itself. Totally disarms Adams himself, John Quincy Adams, by saying, how do you do, sir? My congratulations to you. Then as he's heading home to Nashville, he gets madder and madder and madder. What's relevant there, I think, is Jackson's vision of how to redress this loss of the presidency, which he believed he had won because of the popular vote, was not to relitigate what had just happened, but to look forward and run again in 1828. 
1828 comes, and this is the one that, that you were talking about before, where he's got all kinds of other problems, which Adams is very, Adams's people are very prepared to yeah. exploit. You, like, the, okay, once again, you think you just lived through the most horrible, hard-bitten election ever. Tell them about the coffin handbills. Yeah, uh, the coffin handbills. Jackson had been a controversial general, self-taught general, uh, born in 1765, the lowest end of white society, never knew his father, orphaned by his, his mother and his brothers, died in the Revolution. In many ways, he saw the country as his family. But he was a ferocious guy. You know, he carried two bullets around in him from duels throughout his life. He'd also actually killed a man in a, in a duel. Well, yeah, but he it insulted his wife, so that was that was okay. <laughs> and there were he was accused of different massacres during his Indian Wars. He had imposed martial law in New Orleans during the War of eighteen twelve, and so there were handbills put out, uh, basically tweets of the day of the day with coffins of, of those who he had been accused of killing. And the argument was, do you want this wild man, this murderer, to be president? And the answer was yes, the country did. And Jackson answered by, <laughs> I mean, of all the things you can accuse poor John Quincy Adams of doing, procuring prostitutes <laughs> for the Russian czar is not high on the list. And that he had you know, stolen money for billiards tables. It was just all the kind of what we would now call in a very high-minded way character issues. Mm-hmm. Politics was tough even then because it was a democratic, lowercase d, enterprise. And the suffrage was widening uh, in the 1820s. Uh, progressively through the decades, more and more people were able to participate. Uh, the, the means by which people, candidates could reach those voters were expanding. The number of newspapers, uh, the capacity of pamphlets, obviously. And so many of the techniques and mechanics of politics that we think of as new or at least dating from, say, the rise of television were very much in, in, at work uh, in the early republic. The world felt faster. The world felt smaller uh, with the rise of mass print. And Jackson was a creature of that. Just so we're clear about the coffin handbills, though, this, some of them referred to yeah, – I mean he basically executed some of his men out there on the trail yeah. without due process, as we say. You're so picky about that <laughs> up here. Yeah, yeah. Sure. I mean, Jackson, you know, I, I wouldn't... And, and we don't really know what they did either. No, I mean, this raises a very important question, which is to what extent do we hold people of the past to moral account? Are we better off judging people by the moral standards of our time or do we have an intellectual obligation to judge them by the moral standards of their time? So therefore, if you're talking about Jackson and Native American removal, for instance, all right, let's think about it. What were the moral voices of the time? Were there voices of reform arguing against removal? And there were some, but it was not a widespread movement. Andrew Jackson was on the extreme edge of the mainstream on removal and on slavery, but he was within the mainstream. And as Arthur Schlesinger used to say, self-righteousness in retrospect is easy, also cheap. And so my own view of the moral utility of history is that if some of the best figures of the past could get things so woefully wrong, then what are we pushing to the side because of political, moral, economic, or cultural convenience? 
you know, there's always the question that I have, you know, should we be alarmed when they're fighting like cats and dogs or should we be more alarmed when they're getting along about stuff? But I, I think there are moments that you depict that display a comedy that we just don't see anymore. So in, in the Jefferson book, there's a moment where, I mean, Hamilton and Jefferson, they are, they're cats and dogs, right? They're, yeah. But there's a moment where Jefferson, I think, decides, you know what, we're going to have to have dinner because men of sound heads and honest views need nothing more than explanation and mutual understanding to come to some kind of agreement, yeah. right? Yeah. And so they do. They sit down and they have dinner and they work things out. Right? It's arguably the most, one of the most important dinners since the Last Supper. I mean, the Jefferson-Hamilton thing is really interesting because, and not just because of Broadway, but they, they never reconciled. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were, as Jefferson put it, like two cocks in a pit. They disagreed over everything. I, I sort of really, as a biographer of Jefferson, I really wanted him, after the duel, to have said something kind about Hamilton, but it's not there. And to some extent, the Jefferson-Hamilton idiom continues to recur in our politics. Uh, but at one point, Washington was very worried about not their partisanship necessarily, because we're all going to be partisan. So Washington, realizing that Hamilton and Jefferson were just disagreeing because the other one said something, wrote them both a letter. And it, it, it said this, um, how unfortunate it is that whilst we are encompassed on all sides with avowed enemies and insidious friends, that internal dissensions should be harrowing and tearing our vitals. Reflexive partisanship is what we have to guard against, not partisanship itself. You know, there's a, a similar kind of moment in your Jackson book. And, and we know that you know, during the 19th century, things were often very, very contentious in, in Congress. You had people hitting each other with canes and stuff like that. But yeah. there's this incredible moment. It's in 1830. Daniel Webster and Robert Hayne are having these debates and it's Ali versus Frazier. It's, 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 <laughs> yeah. pr- it's about protective tariffs, but it's really about the future of the union. Uh, and so Webster very typically gets up there and just gives this corker of a speech and he gets back to his seat. And once somebody else who I think goes unnamed says, you had better die now and rest your fame on that speech. Yeah. And Hayne, who is his blood opponent in this thing said, no, a man like who gave a speech like that should never die. And I just, I don't think Mitch McConnell and Chuck Schumer have these kinds of no, you know. no. Um, yeah, that was the that's the great Webster speech that generations of school children had to uh, memorize. You know, liberty and union, one now and forever, one and inseparable. But that's a big definitional argument. Mm. And do we have today people in the Senate, people in our politics who could do that? I think if the moment were there, I do think that that we could. Because one of the reasons I do what I do is that nobody, as David McCullough has said, nobody walked around in the past say, "Hey, I'm living in the past. Look at this." You know, it, it, it's all conditional. It's all contingent. You know, Webster had vicious opponents. Jackson, you know, could barely survive politically. Lincoln began his term saying that slavery was safe where it existed. FDR interred the Japanese. It's never clean. It's never perfect. And to me, what's so inspirational about history is not that they were different than us, but that they were just like us, and they managed to leave things just a little bit better off, and sometimes more. I I live in a state where 50 years ago, voter registrars, when an African-American came in to register to vote, would put a box of soap on the counter and say, if you can tell us how many flakes of soap are in this box, 
will register you to vote. Neighboring cities here burned in the 1960s mm-hmm. in riots. You know, we've, yes, we have a long, long way to go, and yes, things are at risk, and yes, it's a dangerous time. And just because things were bad in the past doesn't mean it's not bad now. But we have a certain obligation, it seems to me, to each other to have a sense of proportion about this and to remind ourselves what's really important and what's really worth fighting for. And your colleague, Rick Perlstein, lately has been using the phrase historical narcissism, this notion that we are living through this incredible crisis that is unlike any other crisis. You know, I look back on... On Kennedy now, this was a very, very physically ill man uh, who was taking shots of amphetamines and human placenta and God knows what else and using other kinds of drugs to control this horrible physical condition he had. And, And we're in one of the scariest historical times that we could possibly be in. And he was fabulous in the Cuban Missile Crisis, but I feel like that was a roulette wheel, you know? I mean, if this is a man who was really, really in a lot of trouble physically and psychologically, and we somehow or other lived through that. Yeah. Uh, one of the tragedies of Dallas, which we just commemorated, what, eight days ago, was that it's one of the cases where we, we can watch a president learn on the job. Hmm. That is his learning curve from being 43 years old, 43 years old when he was elected president, to go from the Bay of Pigs in April of 61 to the missile crisis in October 62 to the test ban treaty in 63, you know, it was, you know, you were watching someone learn on the job and have a certain amount of humility to reach out for help. After the Bay of Pigs, he reached out to Eisenhower and that, that was not, there was not a lot of love lost there. Believe me. Kennedy used to refer to Eisenhower as that old, uh, and Eisenhower referred to Kennedy as the young whippersnapper. So it was not a big, a big moment, uh, not a warm thing. But Eisenhower gave him good advice, and it helped down the road. And that's one of the hopes I have for the moment. We have to talk a little bit about the, the Bush book, the Bush 41 yeah. uh, book. Um, and so we've been talking a lot about how you, you just said, you know, it's never clean, it's never perfect. Here's this man who is uh, an incredible gentleman. Your esteem for him uh, shines through. He's, I think he looks great to all of us right now, no matter what we thought of him in 1988 or 19. Uh, no, it, it, sorry, quickly. I mean, the people, you know, when he was running for office, people used to say that his the problem with women voters, George Herbert Walker Bush's problem was that he reminded most women of their first husband. And now, yeah, he looks like Cicero. Yeah. You know. But reading the book, you, there's such a distinction between the 88 campaign and the 92 campaign, how they were run. Uh, and reading the book, it's so obvious that Bush had more to say about it in 92 and, and about the tenor of the campaign and how he was and how he wasn't going to run against Bill Clinton. But, you know, 88 is an ugly campaign. And yeah. Lee Atwater and Roger Ailes do stuff so horrible that Lee Atwater, as a dying man, feels obligated to, to apologize uh, for what he did. And it's interesting in the book to read that because it's so not who Bush is, right? That, yeah. I don't know. I mean, tell Well, me it's one of the that. many contradictions. Uh, and y'all are responsible. Thanks. Uh, you know, he's, he's, a, he's a, you know, Greenwich Country Day School. Uh, he's one of the most uh, innately empathetic and warm men I've ever met. The reason I did the book is because I'd never experienced in my journalistic career of 30 years or whatever, uh, I'd never experienced such a gap between the public impression of someone and the private reality than when I met George Bush Sr. 
I mean, he was charismatic in person. He was gracious. He was he gives off an ineffable sense of command. Within 20 minutes of meeting Bush, I thought, I've just been wrong. I had this sort of Dana Carvey view of him. You know, as Dana says, the best way to do a George Herbert Walker Bush is Mr. Rogers trying to be John Wayne. Yeah, yeah not going to do it. Um, but then I sat around with him and I thought, good God, you know, this is somebody. Of course you would trust this man in a nuclear age. And the country was right to. I'll, I'll get to the campaign. But it was – when you look back on that presidency, the Tiananmen Square, the fall of the wall – the end of communism, the first Gulf War, he put together 35 nations to go into uh, – not to go into Iraq, but to go into Kuwait uh, to reverse uh, that aggression. The recession, which, which seemed so significant at the time, historically was not as deep as we thought. The deal he made in 1990 that in many ways cost him the election because it cost him the Republican base, uh, raising taxes – as Bill Clinton will tell you at length, which is redundant, uh, <laughs> that that deal set the conditions for the prosperity of the 1990s. And he was the last president of the World War II generation. He's been our last president with any combat experience, which is an interesting thing to think about. He was driven by this incredible sense of service and empathy, as I said. At Greenwich Country Day, he, he, always, he always won the annual obstacle course race. Now, he was a wonderful athlete, one of the best athletes who's ever president. Um, and so so much so that they would keep him back so that he would – everybody else would have a handicap where they would run ahead. And so he's, he takes off, and they have these little uh, tunnels uh, that you were supposed to go through. And he's running along, and he looks down, and he sees a classmate named Bennett McNichol stuck in the barrel. So he stops. He's 12 years old. He stops. He pulls Bennett McNichol out of the barrel. And then so as not to embarrass Bennett, they run together and finish the race in last place. But they ran together. And I'd heard that story not from President Bush, but from a McNichol. Uh, and when I asked him about it, over we did, we did nine years of interviews for this. It was like the world's worst wasp-on-wasp therapy. <laughs> you know, He'd cry, I'd cry, and then we'd have a drink. I said, well, why did, you, why did you stop? And he really looked at me as if I were crazy. And he said, well, I'd never been stuck in a barrel, but if I had been, I'd want somebody to pull me out. You know, you idiot. But he was also as driven a man as ever held the office, as competitive a man as ever got to that place. And that was the drama. That is the drama in his head and heart, is he wants to win, and if somebody has to lose, that's fine. That was in 1988. That was Michael Dukakis. And he really believed Dukakis was outside the mainstream. We can argue about that all night if you want. I asked him once, I said, you know, whenever I ask you, sir, why you went into politics, you say it was service. And I said, but, you know, if it were just about service, sir, with all respect, you could have opened a soup kitchen. You know, you saw an ultimate authority in a nuclear age. You know, why was that? And I asked him that one, one morning in Houston. And he didn't really answer, and we moved on to something else. That was, say, at 9 a.m. At 4.30 or so, I was at the house. We were in his office in the morning. I was at his house in the afternoon, and Mrs. Bush was there, and we were, the three of us were talking. And all of a sudden, he looks up with no context, no reference to anything that was going on in the room at that moment. He said, it's B number one. It's B the captain of the team. 
it's when, whatever it takes. Within the rules, but when. That question had been bouncing around in his head all day. And he was answering it eight hours later. And so he went, he, he was, by God, he was going to win the presidency. And Michael Dukakis was in the way. I said to you a couple of times as we were leading up to this, I did want to talk a little bit about American Gospel, which is a different kind of book. It's your exploration of the role of religion in American life and what we understand about separation of church and state. And once again, we're sitting in Connecticut. Danbury is about 60 miles away. Uh, That's uh, where your friend Thomas Jefferson reaches out to some beleaguered Baptists. And it's where the phrase first occurs, right? Separation of church and state. Well, it's the first time it appears in American public life. It, it had begun, it's actually a phrase from the Anglican divine Richard Hooker, who talked about a wall of separation that would protect the garden of Christ's church from the wilderness of the world. The initial idea was not to protect the state from the church, but the church from the state. That the church was too important to be caught up in the political and imperial matters of the age. Jefferson picks the phrase up. My argument in the the book you you kindly allude to is that the great good news about the country is that religion has been able to shape us without strangling us, and we owe that to the political and cultural battles over religious liberty. Connecticut was at the forefront of that. Connecticut was also your your ratifying convention wanted to rewrite the preamble of the Constitution to declare the country's allegiance to Jesus of Nazareth. And it was voted down in the ratifying convention here. We also had a state religion here until 1818, too. I right. mean, we had one of the reasons that the poor Baptists in Danbury were feeling so oppressed is because what we sort of call congregationalism now was the state, the official state religion of Connecticut, and everything else was therefore lesser. It's a case where deregulation worked. The moment we got the government out of religion in most states, religion took off. You had the Second Great Awakening when government got out of the way. And so I think that religious liberty is one of the singular American contributions. So, so the notion, part of the notion is that religion can flourish but not be established. Right. Uh, and, and, you know, we are entering a period right now where one religion is being incredibly demonized by people in office. Anyway, yeah. we, we, we've, run a, we've been through a campaign where a religion, there's been, been an attempt even to strip it of its status as a religion, yeah. which I, I think does but hard against the heads of the founders as you've written about them. Absolutely. Uh, Jefferson said of, uh, of his act in Virginia, it was meant to comprehend within the mantle of its protection the Jew, the Gentile, the Hindu, the Mohammedan, and the infidel of every denomination. You know, we have made public professions of faith in a broad God. I call it prayer breakfast Christianity. But we have been stronger the wider we've opened our arms. The dots are there. The question is whether it's a pattern or not. Uh, and I think that's true. It's true on the Muslim question. I think it's true on a number of other questions about the other. Mm-hmm. I was asked a question about the crucible and whether there would always be a witch in American life. And the answer is, yeah, there will be. You're listening to The Colin McEnroe Show, taped earlier this week at Infinity Hall in Hartford as part of the second annual Jack Chatfield Speaker Series presented by Watkinson School. I'm Betsy Kaplan, our producer for The Colin McEnroe Show. We'll be right back after this break. Stay tuned. It's the early 19th century, and we're going to take this country back. For people like us who don't just think about things, people who make things happen. 
sometimes with speeches too. And also other things. One, two, three, four. Populism, yeah, yeah. Populism, yeah, yeah. Populism, yeah, yeah. Populism, yeah, yeah. This is the age of, this is the age of, this is the age of Jackson. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan. Don't miss any of our shows. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or TuneIn. And visit our Colin McEnroe Show Facebook page. On Monday, we look at the news from over the weekend on The Scramble. And now, back to Colin. Welcome back to Colin's Conversation with John Meacham. We're coming back to John answering a question from the audience about the Electoral College. Should we keep it or no? You know, the original idea was it was a Republican, lowercase r, check and balance. The original idea was that the college was going to be a deliberative body. It wasn't simply going to be this rubber stamp. And so this idea of faithless electors is, um, is a post facto contrivance. Um, if it were, as it had originally been designed, a whole other level of decision-making, then – and if it had been treated that way from the beginning, then that's a different matter. Uh, as it is now, I think it's an anomaly. It's an odd piece of, of constitutional vestige. And you would nationalize campaigns. My vote would count again. I've lived in my adult life in New York and Tennessee. I've never mattered. Um, problem, as you know, with political reform is political reform requires politicians who have succeeded in the system that people are asking to be reformed. And if you have succeeded in a system, you tend to think that it's quite wise in producing the results it produces. Yeah. I mean, you know, to your point, you know, that, in fact, people tend to admire systems that gave them the power that they have. That's one of the other remarkable things about Donald Trump, who, you know, within the last 48 hours started tweeting, you know, a lot of people voted illegally in that election. And I was thinking, you know, usually if you win the election, you don't start talking about how a lot of people voted illegally. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's going to be a special. long. It's going to be a long ride. <laughs> all right, over here. Do we have something? All right. You're That's raising your you hand, laugh. but we have no microphone for you. That's actually kind I of. Funny. We should send somebody up there. I have the microphone. Yeah. Are you ready? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Hi. So you talked about the the That's conversation okay. between Jefferson yeah. and Hamilton being so important, and that reasonable minds can disagree, and and that speaking to one another, even if you're so diametrically opposed, can really bring you to a better place. And it strikes me a little bit in the room that you've come into that most of the conversation, and granted, you know, the jokes have all been at the expense of our president-elect, which is <laughs> easy to do. But my question is, the presumption in most of Connecticut is that anyone that voted for Trump is either sort of racist, homophobic, any number of horribles, yeah. or kind of poor and stupid. And is there a duty on, be it the press, our elected officials, and even just us, I personally don't think that badly of Americans, that there is, a, there, there is something there to be discussed and a reason that people voted for him. And is there a discussion that actually needs to be had that instead of just sort of demonizing the voter and a reason yeah. that isn't happening? Absolutely. Uh, unquestionably. Um, right, but one point first. It is inarguable that the president who has won the Electoral College victory is the least conventionally prepared person for the office, right? Okay, so we'll stipulate that. And so therefore, if you're someone like me 
who only thinks about conventional preparation and chronicles that, that's going to loom pretty large. Okay? So I think raising those questions is, to some extent, I would be practicing historical malpractice if I didn't. And I've had this conversation with the nominee. So I'm not saying anything to you I haven't said, I didn't say to him. Secondly, I live in a state where 92 out of 95 counties voted for Donald Trump. Uh, My next-door neighbor had two Trump signs and a Trump flag. My across-the-street neighbor did not have a sign but was was very very much for him. I totally understand why Trump won, both intellectually and emotionally. Part of it is a classic populist argument that if experts are so smart, then why are things the way they are? which is an explicit argument he made in his book that he published last year. Secondly, I think there are two numbers that explain what happened. One is 19%. Only 19% of Americans, according to Gallup, trust the federal government to do the right thing. That's down from 77% in 1965. So we've gone from three-quarters of the country trusting Washington to fewer than one in five. The second is 135,000. That's the number that the White House suggests is the household income figure for a family of four to lead a classic post-World War II middle-class life. The household income in the United States today is median household income is $57,500. So that missing gap and that number, that trust deficit, created the climate for this remarkable figure to come along and assume the highest office in the land. So I totally understand that. I totally understand why Hillary Clinton would not be seen as an agent of change. So I understand why this happened. I didn't really see it coming. To my mind, the question is, if you – is the classic formulation, to whom much is given, much is expected. We've now given him everything, and so we have to expect a great deal in return. And nobody hopes more than I do that, you know, he grows in the office and and comes to understand it. And I hope that the voters who supported him remain engaged and, and, and continue a kind of a participant driven democracy. That means this was not simply a protest vote. It wasn't simply, I'm not going to, I can't stand having her there, but we'll also hold him to account. One source of hope I have is that Trump is very driven by – all politicians are, but he in particular – he's driven by numbers, right? Remember, he loved to talk about the polls. He loved to talk about mowing down the 17 candidates. The only number that's going to matter to him going forward, whether there are two, there's the economic growth number, there's the stock market, three numbers, stock market, but also his approval rating. The approval rating – I think if the approval rating is below 50, he's not going to like it. I think that may f- put him – closer to the center than people think. But even those categories, I'm not sure really apply to him. I mean, he's not really a conservative, right? He's not really a liberal. We always say, this is what we want, right? We want someone who will be commonsensical. We want someone who will not be trapped by the shibboleths of right, left and right. Well, we're about to see how that works. I think it's a great question. If you really believe that there were 60 million people in your country who were either monsters or idiots, you really should move. We were talking backstage in in the green room about the fact that 
for me, two of the great pieces of campaign journalism this time were done by George Saunders and David Eggers, who were both primarily fiction writers. But they went out and they talked to people, and one gift that fiction writers have is the ability to climb into the heads of other people who are not like them and try to understand them. And if you read the reporting that they did, you, you get to her point pretty quickly, which is, yeah, these people aren't all either monsters or idiots. They have their reasons. They're not maybe reasons that you or I would accept, but... You know. But you can't, you're right, but my view is you can't be for democracy only when you win. Right. And so this is what the country decided. Wish him well because his success and our success are now inextricably bound up together. And that's America, and that's why America is difficult, and it's why it requires as much grace as we can muster. And I think it's safe to say that this is a moment where we need to muster a great deal of it. Thank you. All right, that was very well done. So I just want to quickly say that I, I knew uh, Jack Chatfield very well. Uh, he was a wonderful man and a great friend and a great teacher of American history. He would have loved this evening. He would have dragged his chair out on stage with us. We would have had three people on stage. He would have loved this conversation, John. You've been so great and so generous with your time here. But thank you all for coming out. Thanks for And a great hand for John Meacham. Big hand now. I like to say... of our country Those people aren't bad nor are they mean They're the leaders we have while they're the worst that we've had Are hardly the worst this poor world has seen Let's turn history's pages, shall we? Take the Caesars, for example. While the first few of them, they were sleeping with their sister, stashing little boys in swimming pools and burning down the city. One of them, one of them appointed his own horse to be council of the empire. That's like vice president or something.